I didn't have family connections intact. I didn't have family money. I didn't have, you know, an Ivy League education or, you know, background in, you know, consulting or corporate or anything like that. And I figured out my path to, to where I am today without having a head start in any of those in any of those areas. So why I love sales. Uh, it's the ultimate level playing field. You don't even need a college degree to be good at sales, to be in sales, to get a job in sales. You can make as much money as 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 hardy as you work. You can spend it on whatever you want, and, and you can go as far as you can go based on how hard you work. Welcome back to the Well Now What podcast. I'm your host, Savannah. What if I told you that you could get greater success and more money in your career in less time? Well, today's guest, Max Alshuler, is on a mission to help other millennials navigate their careers through promotion pathing and learning the skills necessary to capitalize on the short term while thinking long term. And Max was never an Ivy student or an athlete or a rich kid or even well connected in his industry. And over the course of his career, Max learned many lessons the hard way through his entrepreneurial journey and created books, blogs, and a podcast series to provide actionable and technical tips so you can learn the easy way. I found this episode really helpful because I've kind of always struggled with sales and the skills that you learn in sales, if you don't go in it directly, I feel like it's very hard to learn and it could be really intimidating pitching yourself. But Max really proves that you don't need to have an extensive background to be successful in sales. And we also talk about the importance of sales in any career path. So if you're not going into sales directly, the skills that you learn there are extremely important for anything that you go into. And we also talk about how we can increase diversity in the sales um, because men have historically dominated the space. And so how can we include more women in there? And then we also talk about the absolute yeses and nos when it comes to pitching yourself and perfecting a pitch deck. I really enjoyed speaking with Max. You can tell he's very knowledgeable about the industry and he's very passionate about helping millennials achieve more and do better by career hacking. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm here with Max Elschuler. Max is the founder and CEO of Sales Hacker, the leading community for the next generation of sales professionals. He's the author of Hacking Sales, Sales Engagement, and Career Hacking for Millennials. And Max is redefining what it means to build a successful career. When most people were busy trying to land internships in college, Max got his school to agree to pilot one of the earliest bike sharing programs. When that business failed to raise the necessary funds to get off the ground, and Max found himself without a job as he graduated into the worst economies of the century, he started a social media consultancy that generated revenue within its first 30 days. After that, Max launched Sales Hacker and became a self-made millionaire by the age of 30, and forever changing how he thinks people should approach their careers. I'm really excited to chat with Max today because you can tell he's extremely passionate about helping fellow millennials find success and live their best lives. He truly serves as an advocate for the next generation. So Max, before we get started on how you started Sales Hacker and what you're doing now, let's backtrack to college. So I read that you had an architecture major. So how did that, how did you pivot from architecture to your entrepreneurship journey? Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on, by the way, but uh, it, it's a good question. Um, I was an architecture, I, I, I was never a very good student. Going back to high school, grade school, my parents were always trying to figure out, oh, you know, does he need Ritalin or Adderall? I never did well on those that just kind of sapped up my creativity. Does he need to, does he need to potentially go to a trade school or something else? We never ended up experimenting with that, but I was never a very good student. But the one class that I did really well in, which was introduced my senior year of high school, we had this architecture program. It was like brand new at my high school. You could take it instead of like, you know, wood shop or something like that. 
and I got really into it. And I was a builder. I was always a builder in my life. Uh, my dad will like to say that my first word was demolition because we build these blocks up in my basement and then I'd, we'd say demolition together and I'd run through them. But um, I ended up with an, uh, a, an opportunity to study architecture at Arizona State and uh, did it in their undergrad program for my, my freshman and sophomore year. And then my junior year of college, the housing market crashed. It was 07, 08. And I was actually studying abroad in Barcelona, which is like an architecture like heaven. And I called my dad from there and just said, hey, I'm going to graduate with this specialized degree and there are going to be no jobs available, which I do. And he told me, you know, might be a good time to see what your other options are. So I, uh, I went out, looked at um, what was possible to salvage my current uh, amount of credits. And it turns out that Arizona State and, and many colleges have a program called BIS, which is Bachelor of Interdisciplinary Studies. And um, I was able to salvage my design credits. It's kind of like two minors equal a major, but then there's also like 16 credits that you take. So four classes, I think it was something like that, 15, 16 credits that integrate the two. And it was actually really interesting for me as somebody who's going to be an entrepreneur in their lives because I got the design side, the creativity side mixed with you know the, the business credits that I would take later on. So ended up not graduating with the architecture degree. Definitely want to get back into that at some point in my life because it's still fascinating to me. But it actually helped frame a lot of the creativity and, and design thinking, structured thinking um, that you bring to entrepreneurship while still stacking on the business credits. And, and I found ways to hack uh, you know, hack my college experience. So I, I, I took a lot of my classes online um, and at local community colleges online so that I could free up my time to spend on building businesses and traveling the world while, uh, while also getting my degree uh, from Arizona State. That's awesome. Yeah. So with the social media consultancy, how did you grow and how did you get kind of your first clients? I think I read that you went to Costa Rica or something. Yeah. So do you mind explaining more about that? Yeah. So when the bike share business failed and I graduated pretty much at the same time and I didn't know what I wanted to do next. I, I knew that I didn't want to go right into, into, you know, the, the corporate world, go work for some big company, be like another cog in the wheel or, you know, just another number or something like that. I didn't think that would ever be my path. It, it wasn't really, you weren't really starting to see like the startup boom at this time that you see today. You know, now it's everybody, you know, starting a company, but it wasn't like that back in the day. Like, what could we do to make American money while living abroad? That would be really interesting. And at the time, social media for businesses was just starting to, to, to kind of have its, its heyday. So that was back when like Foursquare and Yelp were very popular for businesses. Um, everybody had their own business Facebook page. It was becoming a thing. And our generation at that time, knew a lot about it. So we were able to be experts on that pretty easily. We were also able to arbitrage a lot of the work to the Philippines and Pakistan and Bangladesh and things like that. So any like actual work that we needed to do on it, we could run the strategy and then we can outsource the tactical side of it. It worked out really well because we were able to make American money and, and find clients in the US that would pay us to, to run the services. And then we'd arbitrage a lot of the work over to some of these third world countries where the work was a lot cheaper. We'd project management, manage it to make sure it got done well and, and done the right way. And we didn't need to live in America to do it. So we went down to Costa Rica, Nicaragua for about five months, ran the business down there, spent a lot of our time, you know, on the beach, in the ocean, uh, hanging out, having fun and, and still, you know, understanding how to run and uh, understanding the ins and outs of a business like this. And I think it was a great learning experience for us, but you know, ultimately we got, we got to a point where we're like, Hey, we're too ambitious for this. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, what, 
what's next? And that's, uh, that's how I ended up at Udemy, which is uh, an online education marketplace that I was the I think like eighth employee at, um, second business hire for a sales guy, and uh, now is a multi-billion dollar company. Yeah, no, that's that's incredible. And so from there, um, after Udemy, you started Sales Hacker because you figured that there wasn't a, like a structured way to teach people sales or learn sales from people, but you were able to figure it out on your own. So do you think you're kind of like a natural salesperson? Do you have that confidence? Because I know, I guess you probably did cold calling back in the day, but I know when I had my first co-op or internship, we call that co-op in Canada, but um, we had to do cold calling and I was so awkward, like trying to ask someone for something and it's so nerve wracking and most people will just like hang up on you. So I'm just wondering, how did you kind of gain that confidence and how did you know, like, I know what to say, or I know what to like, is it fake it till you make it or how did you do that? Yeah, I was not very good at, at writing emails or doing cold calls when I first started. It was mm-hmm. repetition, practice, testing what worked, what didn't work, talking to peers, um, and really just getting thrown into the fire. Like there was no other alternative. Uh, I had gotten a job at, at Udemy when I, when I first started in sales and, you know, separate to the, the business that I had started. And uh, I was never going to go work for, you know, a large company and be a, a corporate employee or anything like that. Like I had to be able to, to leverage the creative side of things mm-hmm. with the business side of things. And, um, and so I had, a, I had to like teach myself a lot of that. I had to learn on the fly. And I was, I'm, I, I don't, I wouldn't say like I'm the most outgoing person. I'm also not like, I don't, I don't know if I'm shy, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in the middle there somewhere. So like, I feel like if I could do it, kind of anybody could do it. But, you know, I learned and it took a while, but I learned how to, how to get thick skin and like, you know, get past the rejection. And like, there were mm-hmm. little things that I, like I, I would, um, if I got rejected on a call, like, and I had to get right on the next call. I would do like a victory pose or a Superman pose. It'd be funny if you watched me through like the little glass windows in our call booths, but I'd be like speaking to myself, like hyping myself up. But sometimes like if you could do the victory pose, like hands in the air, like Y-shaped body and mm-hmm. smile at the sky, you almost like reset your mind. You reset mm-hmm. your vibe and then you're able to get on the next call. And so you, you could go through a couple calls in a row where it's just rejection or, um, you know, it's, it, it's tough. It's a tough job. But uh, it, it does build the foundation for a much more successful future. Like if you're going to start your own company, I mean, sales is at the root of everything you do. So if you're, mm-hmm. you're going to raise money, if you're going to start your own company, you have to sell, you have to get customers. If you're even, if, you, if you're a marketer or somebody else in your career, you still have to sell yourself to your employers, whether you're getting a job or trying to get promoted. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a million different ways that you, you know, are going to, are going to leverage that skill set over time. So I, I think getting in as an early stage salesperson, doing that for a year, uh, you know, of your career, no matter what you end up doing, it's like such an amazing foundational skill set to be able to communicate effectively and be able to talk to anyone. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I was in a business program in college, and I find that the schooling system everywhere, even like unless you're like specialized in a program, they don't really teach you much about sales or like what's a good credit score, how to do your taxes, like those important real life stuff. So I guess it's just kind of going out and just like learning it through experience, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I want to speak a little bit about diversity or lack of diversity in sales. So historically, men have dominated the sales department and the tech company I work for. Um, It's all men, actually. 
that are in sales. So when you're starting to build like courses, doing talks and podcasts, did you ever consider um, how you would teach sales differently for females? And do you think the industry is changing to be more inclusive or like, what are your thoughts there? I definitely think as millennials and Gen Z and the newer generations move into sales, that things are changing significantly. Um, it's be- becoming more inclusive and people care more about that for sure. Um, you're also starting to see some of the boys club things kind of cycle out, phase out. Like, it, you know, our, our generations and, and the newer generation, so I'm a millennial, you know, millennials and newer, I, th- I would say, or younger, um, don't find those the same things as interesting. Golf and scotch and steaks, you know, not as interesting as things that I think are more inclusive um, to everyone. I also think that organizations like ours, like Sales Hacker, have tried for, for you know, our the last seven years that we've been in business and continue to ramp up our efforts to do more around diversity and inclusion and to make it feel... No, I'm not necessarily sure that like any training, like any of the sales training is different. Um, there's basic human resources training that I'm sure is different. But what it is, is, you know, when we always had the saying, what you see on stage is what you get in the audience. And so... Companies like ours who produce conference, build media companies, create content, do podcasts, all that kind of stuff. If all you ever see is white men on stage, on podcasts, in content, mm-hmm. then people who aren't white men feel intimidated. They don't want to go in that room. They don't see others like them. And so mm-hmm. we always okay, like, let's bring more to the table. Let's make sure our our, our dais is, is diverse, our stage is diverse when we, we do these events, when we do podcasts, when we do content, things like that, so that people can be inspired when they see a powerful woman or a powerful, you know, black man up there that is, you know, being a badass, doing a mm-hmm. fantastic job running sales at a company. And it's like, I can do that. Like I see somebody in that role and I can do that. And I think that's super important. So I don't think that it's, you know, a whole separate set of sales training per se. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, which is, which you see on stage is what you get in the audience. And so, you know, we need to do our part to help elevate underrepresented people. Um, and I was wondering, how would you, how could someone pitch or perfect their pitch deck? And like, what are the absolute yeses and nos that someone should have in their pitch? Yeah, I mean, pitch decks, um, pitch decks are not as like silver bullet generic. You know, there's a pitch mm-hmm. deck for raising money, there's a pitch deck for selling all sorts of different types of things. They're all different pitch decks. And then in, in some cases, you know, you don't even want to go in with a, a pitch deck. You want to do, you know, discovery and then tailor the pitch to the individual that you're talking to. So I'd say there are some good cases for leave behinds where it's like, oh, here's some collateral that we have about our company. Um, probably, probably many for the less is more in those in those cases. But then before you do a pitch deck, you probably want to do a discovery call or, or at least ask some questions so that you mm-hmm. can the pitch deck to, um, you know, what the other person cares about. I think anytime you go in and you're like, oh, here's my deck, here's the generic deck, like you could be mis-selling yourself, you can be overselling yourself, you could be underselling yourself, you can be like, you can sell yourself out of the room very easily if you don't know what the other person cares about. And you only get one shot in a lot of these situations. So it's very important mm-hmm. that you deliver on that one shot. So if you're in there and you're talking about XYZ features of whatever you're trying to sell and you, you give this generic deck and then at the end of it, you're like, cool, any questions? And they're just sitting there like, nope, and they never talk to you again. Why? Because you hit on XYZ features thinking that that's what they cared about, but they care about ABC features, like the whole other part of your business that you usually don't talk that much about, but some customers do really care about. So, you know, are you talking about, oh, you know, we enable this capability, but you're not talking about governance or enterprise security or anything like that. You're going to miss, you're going to miss the mark. So, Pitch decks are, are only as good as the, 
discovery and qualification call or questioning or research that you do before uh, you create a pitch deck. Right. Yeah. So how does, how can someone appear more genuine? Cause when you're, when you're in sales and you're trying to pitch like a product, a service or whatever, um, how do you come across as still genuine? Like, obviously you want to build a relationship before, but you don't want it to make it seem like I want something out of you. So yeah. what, are, what is, what is your advice there? Tough question. Cause like you should just be genuine. Like most, mm-hmm. I would say that like, don't sell anything that you don't believe in. And mm-hmm. we'll see right through that. There's no way to, there's, there's, you can't fake that. So you should be selling something that you believe in. Um, I think it's important to build a rapport before you go in and sell something right away. There's the, uh, you know, I'm not a, a big like self-help fan or like social media guru fan, but I think one of the things that Gary Vaynerchuk has, has done well is he, he popularized the kind of like jab, jab, uh, hook. Uh, so it's like provide value, provide value, then ask. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to give a couple times uh, provide that value before you can make your ask. And if you try and make that ask right out of the gate, you know, you're probably going to have a, uh, a rougher time uh, at it. So yeah. What are those ways that you can build a rapport? How, how can you um, create common ground? You know, did you go to the same university or, you know, are there things you can call that? I remember um, interesting psychological thing, but I remember when I was backpacking around the world, I'd go to, uh, I'd go to like third world country and a lot of times to gain your trust, they would say, what's your name? And you say your name. And they're like, oh, my uncle's name is Max. And it's like, they try and find common ground as fast as possible so that you go, oh, oh that's really cool. Then you start having conversation. Then mm-hmm. you follow up the whole like, oh, I trust this person. And then they get your business or they brought me blind or whatever it is. Like sometimes <laughs> they're genuinely, you know, good. And they had to do that to get your business. And sometimes mm-hmm. they were nefarious and had other motives. But it's, it's one of those things that I recognized as they were doing it. I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Like, I don't think that the guy from Morocco's brother's name or cousin's name was Max. Like, you know, mm-hmm. probably not true. But um, I do think in, in, in modern sales and in the world in general, like if you can find common ground or find a relationship or somebody that you can come in with pre-built rapport or trust, that that'll go a long way. I just wanted to pop in and to thank this week's sponsor, Fig Facial. And Fig Facial is a facial bar located in Vancouver, Canada. They have two locations, one in Kitsilano and one downtown. And I got the Hydrate and Glow Facial, and it was under 30 minutes, and my skin has never felt softer, dewier, and clearer because I have struggled with acne. And if you're not from Vancouver or from Canada, they do offer um, clean skincare that's handpicked from brands that they love. So you can check them out at figface.com to book a facial or to check out some of their products. Now back to the interview. Yeah, no, that's that's great advice. And I was wondering with Sales Hacker, how did you grow it from one conference to a huge media company, like serving millions? How did that happen? Oh, man. You know, everything looks like it happened overnight, but it was <laughs> a long slog, uh, that's for sure. Yeah, we. Uh, so I started it by myself. Um, I would say we, kind of like in the sense of the queen, you know, um, <laughs> I remember our first check came in at that first conference from a decent sized company and it was a 10 K check and they were like, who do we write it out to? And I was like, Oh man, I have to get like, I have to create like an LLC and get a bank account. For this. <laughs> like, I can't take a personal check for this. But, uh, and then ever since then I was like, well, you know, you got to do the things to make yourself look bigger and feel bigger. But yeah, it was, it was third off of the conference and, and that worked. And then we did the, uh, we did one, in, uh, the first one was in San Francisco. Second one was in New York that worked. started to make money. Um, and I think like, if you work hard, you create opportunities and opportunities kind of lead to serendipity and serendipity, 
you know, is basically the surface area that allows luck, you know, to, to attach to it. So I'd say, you know, I, I worked really hard. I created some opportunities. Those opportunities allowed me to understand like which doors I should walk through or which ones I could walk through. You'd try a couple of those things out. Hopefully get lucky along the way. I got lucky when I met Jason Lemkin. Um, he did our first conference and he was the founder of EchoSign, which sold to Adobe for like a hundred million dollars. He started the Saster Annual, which was a big software conference that we ran for two years. So that the the money from that helped us kind of um, uh, supercharge Sales Hacker and our growth. I was a young, dumb kid trying to do it the first time and had no experience doing any of this stuff. So I made a lot of mistakes. Fortunately, you know, we had a lot of opportunities to do things and try things out. I think startups typically die from uh, indigestion and not starvation. So there are a lot of times where, you know, having too many opportunities was, was an issue and it's like, right. you have to be focused. Um, but again, I was a young, dumb kid and we were trying to figure out what the business was going to be over time. So was fortunate to, to navigate through the mistakes and come out, um, I'd say on top, you know, along the way, but it was, um, it was, it was definitely hard and, and we made a lot of, we made a lot of wrong turns and, and none of them killed the business. So I think mm-hmm. uh, the, my, my recommendation around this is just, you know, experiment, try and understand and, and calibrate around your focus and the strategy that, you know, you, you're, you're tied to. And then as opportunities come up, see if those things, um, you know, are, are revolve around that strategy or if they're just shiny objects and then, mm-hmm. you know, continue moving forward on, on the things that, that are focused on your strategy that don't just look like, Oh, that's a thing we could do. Um, mm-hmm. cause I, I fell for that trap. And I think a lot of people fall for that trap, which is like, Oh, this opportunity came up. We can't pass it up. And it's like, yeah, but it's so short sighted. Like think longer term, because this mm-hmm. really going to help with the overall mission. And, uh, I think in our case, you know, a lot more times the answer was no, than it was. Yes. I, I would have to recalibrate after that. So it, it took a while. Um, yes. but eventually we turned the business into a digital business and sold the company to outreach. Um, while I was running Sales Hacker, I was in, I was investing and advising companies. Outreach was one of them. So, uh, so yeah, it all all worked out in the end. Uh, but it's um, it's it's tough. There are rocky times for sure. For sure, yeah. So on that note, what does the term hacker mean to you? Like you use it a lot for your brand, but yeah. what does it really mean? Somebody doing more with less. So for sales hacking, it's generating more revenue using less resources. We coined that when I was at Udemy, which was an early stage startup. We had a million in funding, like a 10-person team or whatever. And we had to figure out how to grow at ridiculous rates. And the only way to do that was to kind of hack hack the process. So you take a normal sales process, and instead of having salespeople that work in-house in San Francisco, where our headquarters was, we outsourced them to the Philippines. So now you're paying $800 a month instead of $8,000 a month. You know, instead of using just a, a CRM, which is your system of record to house our data, one of the first sales engagement platforms, ToutApp, which no longer exists, Outreach is, is now the leader in that space. But we use that to automate a lot of our uh, emailing that we did and like tasks for calling and things like that. So we found ways to, to do more with less. And then I talked, you know, I wrote a book on career hacking. Same thing. I didn't have family connections in tech. I didn't have family money. I didn't have, you know, an Ivy League education or, you know, background in, you know, consulting or corporate or anything like that. And I figured out my path to, to where I am today without having a head start in any of those, in any of those areas. So you know, I, I, I was a big, uh, I still am a big fan of Tim Ferriss. You know, he was, he was kind of an inspiration for a lot of the stuff that I've, I've done, but you know, he was, he went to Princeton. He's a genius. He's a smart guy. Like, I went to Arizona State, could never got into Princeton. So I like to think that like when I 
tell people about my career trajectory and the things that they can, that I've done, they can do it too. I don't care who you mm-hmm. are. You can do it too. Versus, you know, some of the other folks where it's like, well, I don't have an Ivy League degree or, or even a brain that works like that. Um, and in the same, in the same regard, that's why I love sales. Uh, it's the ultimate level playing field. You don't even need a college degree to be good at sales, to be in sales, to get a job in sales. You can make as much money as, as, as hard as you, as you work. You can spend it on whatever you want. And, and, you know, you can, you can go as far as you can go based on how hard you work. And, you know, it's a, it's a completely level playing field. Yeah, no, I agree. And what, what are three things that millennials, Gen Zs can do today to help um, achieve more success and maybe more money in their careers? Yeah, go out and read um, Career Hack <laughs> Millennials. That'll, that'll get, <laughs> I can't sum it up in, in a minute here, but that's, that's kind of like all my, all my key learnings from uh, my career to date. And, uh, you know, my, my biggest kind of, I guess, mantra from the book yes. that I reiterate often is your 20s are for learning and your 30s are for earning. So mm-hmm. um, it's about being patient, about being smart, about being long, long-term, uh, long on your career, not short-term, not short-sighted. You know, I'll talk to young people in sales all the time and they'll tell me, yeah, I'm like choosing between two companies. Um, one company has $115,000 on target earnings, um, half commission, half base. The other one has one, you know, 125 half commission, half base. You know, I think I'm going to go with the 125 because it's 10K more. And then it's like, well, you got to ask the questions. Like, how many people are hitting their on target earnings? How many hit, people are hitting their quota to make their full on target earnings at that company? How, mm-hmm. you know, what's the boss like? What's the company like? Like, is it a second time founder? You know, what's the funding like? Which product do you like better? Thinking through some of those things is really important because when you're in sales, half your salary is commission-based. So if other people that are there right now are not hitting their quota, they're not getting all their commissions. So they're not actually making that money. Number two, more importantly, thinking long-term, you should walk, work for the best boss at that age. That 10K is that, is that nice to have 10K. If mm-hmm. you're making 115 or you're making 125, at that point, your universal, like basic, your living needs are covered. So make the best decision for you long-term. Work for the best boss, work for the best company, work for the product that you're going to be able to sell the best. You know, whatever those decisions are that equate to like you having a much better career long-term versus mm-hmm. kind of make an extra 10 K now, which after taxes is even less, which also if you're, you know, people aren't hitting quota at that company is never even going to be that, you know, that 125 anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. So just make sure you're asking the right questions. You're being patient and you're thinking long-term and uh, you know, the, the question is different uh, or the, the thought process is different if that's, you know, 30 K versus 40 K because then it's not, your universal like basic income type thing. That's not your, your basic needs being covered. You know, that's, that's meaningful. But I think once you get up there, you need to really start thinking about, well, you know, the long-term thinking. Yeah, no, that's, that's great advice. And I just have a last question. Um, many people feel like they need to stay in a job that is safe because they don't know how to turn their passion profitable. Um, so how would you, I know we don't have too much time, but like how would you transition a passion project into like an income making position? Yeah, definitely keep it as a side hustle. That's what they call mm-hmm. it, side big, side you know, passion project. And um, and work at it until you find a path to either, you know, I know how this is going to make money or I'm making money in it. Until you have enough money saved up where you can live for six months without having to have a paying job. And then you can go all in on something. And, and, and you know, pressure makes diamonds. So, you know, sometimes you have to quit and you have to go all in on something in order for it to become a, a big success like that. Because if you don't have that pressure, um, you know, you just don't put everything into it that you need to put into it. So, um, 
yeah, I, I think keep it as a side as a side gig, and you know, do your market validation, do your customer development, make sure you're asking people um, to give feedback on it, things like that. What can you do? Uh, would somebody willing to be? Would would they be willing to pay um, for X or for Y or for Z? And then uh, and then say, okay, get out your credit card. Like, let's do it see if they actually will pay. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time, Max. It's been so great to hear about your journey. And for anyone who hasn't um, heard about his book or read his book, definitely check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes. But thank you again for your time. Um, I really appreciate that. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And that was Max. And if you want to learn more about him, I'll leave all the resources about his books, his blogs, his podcasts in the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcast, and you can follow me on Instagram at Podcast. See you next week.